This is the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Daniel Cognetti. Welcome back to another episode of the AOS Career Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cognetti. We're excited to be joined today by Dr. Stephen Haddad, a foot and ankle surgeon at the Illinois Bone and Joint Institute, who serves as the AOS CME Chair and past president of the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society. Welcome, Dr. Haddad. Thanks, Dan. I'm excited to be here. Today's episode will focus on the benefits of in-person learning opportunities, and it comes fresh off the heels of a very successful AOS annual meeting in Las Vegas. We're really looking forward to diving into the numerous opportunities that orthopedic surgeons can take advantage of from the annual meeting to live courses and everything in between. And on that note, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the AOS Advocacy Podcast hosted by Dr. Brueggemann. If you're interested in advocacy at all, you should check that podcast out for sure. Dr. Haddad, getting started, obviously you've been to a number of these different meetings over the years, annual meeting for AOS. I'm wondering, can you reflect on the most recent meeting and maybe give some perspectives or takeaways that were different from this meeting? I think this meeting becomes a little bit more meaningful based on the past couple of years of AOS meetings. So I've been going to AOS annual since 1995 and has been fairly consistent over those years until, of course, we had the pandemic. And this meeting struggled for a couple of years. The year before this, walking around, there was not very many attendees. The vendors were a stripped down version. So the dynamic interaction we normally see with the academy meeting wasn't really present. So this meeting this year in Las Vegas was a dramatic difference. It's harkened back to the days of old where we had more significant attendance as well as the vendors were back in full force and carpeting was back in the hall, which was also new, I guess. Not only the educational value was great, in addition, the value of interacting with our colleagues has returned to normal. Yeah, definitely noticeable. I was looking up some numbers on the meetings and I think we topped over 10,000 orthopedic guests, whether residents or surgeons. And then there are probably another 10,000 or so people on top of that, which does get back to the numbers of old. So it's good to finally be getting out of the pandemic with that. With the pandemic, as you mentioned, our opportunities for these in-person events has been really limited. What do you think the benefit of in-person meetings, live events is, as opposed to doing a lot of these virtual offerings, which we've seen grow over the past few years? I think there's a significant benefit. I still remain a staunch proponent of in-person education. I think the world is heading more towards the virtual circumstance or the virtual educational events where everyone's sitting with their faces on Zoom. But I think in-person education trumps that in many ways. I think if you look at the most important point, it's the ability to have direct interaction with the faculty as well as the participants in a much more dynamic fashion than we see on a computer screen. If we are in the in-person, we may have a panel or a moderatorship where we can really engage each other on the panel and then also field audience questions in a situation where they're not intimidated. Coming up to the microphone is not quite the same as having your face on Zoom doing the same thing. There's no substitute for that portion of this in-person education. I think that people are a lot more comfortable with not only questions, but also remain more engaged the entire time. I think people tend to drift off on some of these virtual programs. They may go grab some lunch and come back, and they're not really tied to watching the entire event from start to finish. And you miss a lot with that. I think educational events flow for a reason by their agendas. And if you're just tuning in for five minutes, then 
do checking your emails and then tuning out a little bit more. You never really get the whole message that the organizers are trying to impart. So that's, in my mind, probably the most important component to in-person education. It also, of course, provides a social component with interacting with your colleagues, networking, which we never minimize because that gives you a chance not only to grow your practice and question others around you as to how they may handle a problem, but it also allows you to measure your practice and the items that you're doing, whatever you're doing surgically and non-surgically with your colleagues. And again, that's something we don't really have in a virtual setting where things are a lot more structured. One thing that I find these webinars that come out all the time, we get emails about them. You may get your subspecialty emails or a few things that interest you and whether you attend or not, that's up to you. But at these annual meetings, there's a lot of opportunities for seeing diverse perspectives, even other subspecialties that are right in front of you, as opposed to having had to sign up for something that really catches your interest. Can you speak to the diversity of the different offerings, say at the AOS annual meeting and maybe how you've utilized those in the past? That's a great question. In fact, a lot of my friends always ask me, why are you going to that? It has nothing to do with foot and ankle surgery. <laughs> and really, many of the instructional course lectures that I attend are a little bit different in character. I don't go to the one that teaches you how to correct a flat foot. I might go to an infected total knee arthroplasty course because I do a lot of total ankle replacements. And certainly the knee surgeons and the hip surgeons are well-versed in dealing with infection or problems like that much more so than the ankle replacement surgeons are because their volume is so much lower. So I can learn from them. And I also may learn biomaterials from hip surgeons, which is something that might be deficient in my education. I was brought up more so to become a foot and ankle surgeon, which didn't really involve biomaterials for joint replacements back in the time that I was training. So that's a great question, Dan, because those are clearly the opportunities, especially at the academy, where you can just check off whichever instructional course you want to see and it expands your knowledge base so much through this cross-pollinization that we don't often get when we're subjected only to our own discipline. And that is a true value of this kind of a meeting. One thing I've talked about on the podcast and just with colleagues before as a resident, coming to the AOS annual meeting was always super overwhelming. There's just so much going on. Now, for you being involved in AOS, I think the involvement alone gets you a smaller group of people that you develop a relationship with. But I'm wondering if you have some strategies for when we go to these larger annual meetings, how do we make them less overwhelming for young career surgeons and residents? Even now, <laughs> I'll sit and plan out my time at the academy with allowing me to call some audibles in the middle of it and make decisions. So I'll go through the preliminary program. I'll decide which lectures are the most important, and that's the core foundation. So those elements matter as well as the ones, of course, that I'm teaching. Those are time obligations I have too. So once I put those in place, then I start looking for fun things, social programs that might be interesting, certainly get invitations, different receptions, and giving yourself the opportunity to spend time in the vendor portion where all the technical exhibits are is a critical element to this. Not only do you expand your knowledge base on newer ideas you may not have had and how to fix things or replace things or take care of them, you also get a chance to interact with some of the industry partners on a casual basis without them really trying to sell you something all the time in your face. Many of them don't come from the place where you do. They're just there to teach you a little bit about the product line without having to say, can I make sure I come and call on you on Monday? And I learn a lot there too. So I really make sure I carve out at least two to three hours per day just to walk through the technical exhibits and spend time there. 
And that's a time which can be very positive from the vendor experience, but also that's the time when you'll see your friends and colleagues and people you haven't seen for 20 years. And so you have to give yourself a little bit of leeway. (laughs) So you might end up talking to someone for a half hour that you trained with 25 years ago. And that's also the great surprise component to it. So I agree you have to have a structure when you come into this meeting, but the structural times are set. But then of course you allow some variability within that for unexpected circumstances. We've been focusing on AOS annual meeting, and obviously that's a big component. That's the highlight of the year. But there's a lot of other in-person things that the AOS does and that other subspecialty societies do as well. Can you speak to a little bit of the rest of the calendar year away from, say, the annual meeting, how to get involved in those things, what those opportunities look like? Yeah, I think probably one of the biggest highlights to discuss is the skills courses that we hold at the Orthopedic Learning Center through the Academy and even the subspecialty societies do the same. It's been around for, I believe, about 40 years. And it is actually a portion of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons headquarters in Rosemont on the first floor there. So it's a place that has not only lecture halls and that capability, but also a large skills lab that holds at least 40 tables in addition to significant technology within. This has been one of my missions as the CME chair now, because we've seen registration drop over time in these courses post-COVID. They used to be flush, no trouble with registration numbers and things like that. But now we've seen those numbers drop. And I'm trying to figure this out in some ways, because I think that people over the course of the pandemic felt, I can learn everything I need to through YouTube or some are ortho bullets and make those assumptions, but you can never substitute a live in-person skills course for anything you can watch virtually. Those courses are really intensive and personal on so many ways. You sit at a table, you're there with just two or three of your colleagues. You have really a national expert sitting right next to you, walking you through a procedure, making sure you're technically doing it correct hold the saw this way, hold the drill this way. This is how I measure my depth, things like that. Or this is how I deal with things when I see something unexpected in an operating room. You don't have any educational opportunity like that where you can one-on-one discuss how I might handle a specific circumstance with an expert in the field. So the skills courses, I think, are something that can't go away. I think that it's a mission for not only the academy, but subspecialty societies to continue this. And that component of in-person learning must continue. That's probably the most important of all. The other courses, let's just pick out a sports course at a ski resort. Those are great as well, because for the same type of reason, the academy is great with collegial interaction and direct exposure to the faculty. But like I said, the skills courses themselves... People have to come back and realize how important that component to their education is and their continuing education is. I've seen that firsthand. I've been very lucky to go to maybe seven or eight courses actually throughout my residency at the Learning Center through the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons, through Anna and other organizations. And one weekend of operating with me either by myself with an attending who's an expert in the field or one other person in an attending, my skills and my knowledge set are just leaps and bounds, like months of advancement within one week for an eight-hour lab day, like two days. It's unbelievable. I was with Mark Gettleman, who's the president of Anna for one of my sessions and a number of other really great shoulder surgeons. I can't speak enough how great of an opportunity it really was. It's amazing 
because you think about that someone may look at that and say, oh, it's pretty expensive for those two or three days, but look at the opportunity you had being there. You wouldn't have that opportunity to be trained by someone of this caliber. Exactly to that point, I was going to say the expense is something I wanted to talk about because there's a lot of opportunities out there, I think, from different organizations, whether it's foot and ankle or an arthroscopy association, there are opportunities to get funded to go to these courses. And I think that can be an emphasis from residency programs as well of trying to get their residents to go to a course per year. I think a lot of residency programs do that. So I think that continued emphasis as we come out of the pandemic is really going to be good and I think beneficial for resident learning and even early career surgeons. Maybe if you haven't done a knee replacement in a long time, you go back and refresh on that so that you can apply it to your practice. It's a value add. Like you also highlighted, the money you spend here is well worth it as well as the time away is worth it. Because again, we try to structure these courses Friday, Saturday or Friday, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, so they don't really take much time out of your daily practice and compromise that. So this is a no-brainer. You may miss a weekend with your family, and we do appreciate and respect that, but there's 51 other weekends you can hang out with them if you need to. I think there's a lot of other things too that if you're involved in AAS, you know about them, but there's things like the National Orthopedic Leadership Conference, and there's other committee meetings throughout the year, interest groups that you can get involved in, and they give you that in-person networking opportunity that people just need to look into and utilize them. I think they're big benefits to your career in those ways too. Yeah, especially the NLLC meeting. I did that a few times a number of years ago, and I'm not really a politician in many ways, but I do think it's important to advocate for our discipline, whatever, not just your subspecialty, but also orthopedic surgeons in general. And the politicians listen at that time. And like I say, that's a different spin on education, but you really do learn a lot how the political system works. And you don't just sit at home and complain about it. You're actually dynamically trying to help make a difference. So I agree with that. As press president of the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society, you're clearly involved in your subspecialty. I want you to compare and contrast a little bit how you use AOS and how you use your Foot and Ankle Society differently and how to apply each one of those different in-person learning opportunities differently or what you take away from each. Yeah, I think it almost touches on something we spoke of before where with the Foot and Ankle Society, I know when I go to those meetings... I'm going to learn about whatever the current topics are in the world of foot and ankle, whether it be ankle replacement or minimal incision surgery, things like that. I can compartmentalize that and understand that's what I'm going to grow from that. Plus, of course, there's a big social component there since I've known those people forever. When I go to an academy meeting, it's a very different scenario. I meet people that I've never met, but have always wanted to meet entirely different disciplines like some of the people you've mentioned. And I also have a chance again to build my knowledge base more complete with respect to the entire orthopedic universe. So they are different in many ways. They both offer advantages as well. You had mentioned before the academy and the subspecialty societies offering residents benefits in education, not only from their own home programs sponsoring. If we parcel out the AOFAS, they have resident scholarships for all their in-person meetings as well, where 60 to 80 residents can get full tuition and travel and everything else with it. So these are easy opportunities to explore. This is without even presenting a paper. If you just show an interest, you can actually attend these meetings for no cost, which is great in the residency world. Awesome. My next question is, how do you actually go about getting involved in AOS as an early career surgeon or your subspecialty society? How did you go about doing it? Well, it was a while ago, so things are a little bit different, I think, but I started pretty simply. I started just teaching a course at the time, usually you'll have a mentor that helps you out with that. So in my case, my fellowship directors 
recommended me for a course. I was able to get involved to start the teaching component to it. And once you start to work with the academy personnel, you start to meet others within that region. And then you find the regions within the academy world, let's just pick the academy, where you may have specific interests. So like I said, I'm not as much of a politician. I don't really know much about that component. So the areas that revolved around advocacy, I wasn't as strong in, but I was strong in education. And so I spun that component to it. And really, once you start to show an interest, you begin as a committee member, even as a resident, you can do that. You might make a few comments, but as you start getting more comfortable with the people, then they actually start to listen to you. And then suddenly they want you to do another committee. Then suddenly you're chairing a committee or chairing a council and you can take it wherever you like, because there's no better reward than service for what we do. And the daily grind, I shouldn't call it that, but of course the daily grind of patient care in some ways gets repetitive. And this provides a diversion to help on a different level. So the volunteerism, I think is an equally important part. It's not hard to start because they're always looking for people to help. In the academy, we have the CAP. You can apply for any committee you wish through that, AOFAS or whatever subspecialty society. They also have committee openings that they regularly advertise because they need people to help, that's for sure. So you don't start out saying, oh, I want to be president of the academy or president of whatever. You start out saying, I want to learn the organization. I'll make one last comment on that. In my world in the AOFAS, though, like you had said, I did obviously eventually become president. I had done so much work before that in so many committees from occupational health to membership to education that I really knew the organization well. And then I felt comfortable ascending, if you can call it that, to that position. And the problem of just wanting to jump right into that leadership role is you really have no idea what your organization's about. So I'll emphasize that one more time. Start small, pick something you're interested in, Start with that committee. See if you like it. If you like it, stick with it and rise within. If you don't like it, try something else. You're not beholden to anything here, but that's how you really can make a great contribution, I think, as you rise through those ranks. I think that's awesome advice. Is there anything else that you want to add in terms of people utilizing these different in-person opportunities or anything else that the AOS might offer to potential members or early career surgeons? I think I've harped on this point. <laughs> I really hope people take some pause and recognize that though the virtual learning is important and it certainly is important to keep your continuing education going. And if that's your easiest method in doing so, that's fine to a point. But I really think you should study the different educational opportunities out there with respect to in-person education and pick something that might appeal to you. And we have so many opportunities for that in AOS now whatever your discipline is, that you will grow your skills, your educational value, and helping patients, which is the core of what we do, will really improve dramatically through that. So I hope people do take some pause and take a look at the opportunities here for in-person. Great. Thank you so much. I was actually just thinking of an anecdote from one of my attendings. He's a pediatric surgeon by training, but he got into the wave of hip preservation surgery pretty early on and started doing surgical hip dislocations, would go to the cadaver lab. And then he goes up to a course and sees one of the biggest names now in PAOs and essentially the person leading the country and doing these and gains a mentor from this who has now become a lifelong mentor for him as he builds his own PAO practice and hip preservation practice. So even that one little course that one weekend, he found a lifelong mentor, somebody who has changed the path of his entire career. So I think, again, we've hit on it, but they can't overemphasize the importance of these different opportunities. 
And that's just like you're highlighting there, Dan, that's the random portion of this is that you never know what is going to influence you in the end. If I just look at myself, I had no idea, A, I would be an orthopedic surgeon when I went to medical school, B, that I would be a foot and ankle surgeon, or C, that I would actually be involved pretty heavily in education. I thought I was going to go back and be a little small town country doctor back in Ohio. It's the people that you meet that really influence you in different directions because you can identify with them. And that's exactly what your colleague did. That's what I've done along the course of my career is I've met people that really, I say, oh, that's really interesting. I experiment with it and then take off with it or not. But that's, again, one of the value components to in-person events is that you have that time for casual conversation to really let these relationships grow. Dr. Haddad, thank you so much for joining us today, taking us through the wide breadth of offerings of the AOS and particularly the in-person opportunities where you can go get CME and go to a surgical course and learn from experts. And then for those interested in seeing about the upcoming courses or events offered by AOS, you can visit aos.org slash courses for a full lineup. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. I hope this is helpful and I really appreciate you having me involved. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel, with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other conversations on professional development, please visit aos.org backslash the Bone Beat career.